again, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Psalms 2 tonight. Um, and uh, I really think this chapter, this text is probably one that you don't study a lot. I don't know your Bible routines, but I'm just making a hunch. Uh, probably don't study this text a lot. Most of the Psalms get a little bit overlooked, which is unfortunate. But I think that uh, we'll learn a lot from this one. And we're actually going to be moving throughout the Bible tonight. Uh, I know a lot of times I put stuff on the screen, which we're going to have verses on the screen. But there's certain passages that I want right in front of your eyes and your hands. Uh, I want you to be able to turn to them and, and remember where they are and hopefully turn back to them. Uh, so we'll be turning from Exodus to Daniel and a couple other places. So just stick with me and we'll, um, we won't leave anybody behind. Um, but we'll get into Psalms 2 in just a minute. But um, back to the point of our conversation tonight. Have you ever looked around and thought to yourself, what in the world is going on? Particularly with what is going on in the world. I'm sure you've asked that question. Maybe you've asked that question recently. And if you have asked that question, you wouldn't be the first. And in fact, People have been asking that question for a long time. So I know it's tempting to, to, to kind of have a, a very narrow perspective and think, well, it's just something that our generation is going through and a lot of things that are going on are uh, brand new. And in some cases they are, but people have been asking this kind of question for a long, long time. What in the world is going on? And, and the Bible actually records and chronicles many who observe the troubles in the world feeling the impact of the world, uh, who asked the question often again and again, what in the world is going on with the world? Many of the ancients rightly wondered if it may have something to do with the disconnect between the chasm between creature and creator, creation and creator. And again, that was a right assumption because of course, some of the chaos that we observe, a lot of the chaos we observe, all the chaos we observe, um, there is a connection, uh, there is a correlation between that and the divide between us and God. And in Psalms 2, King David, who wrote most of the Psalms, especially the early Psalms, uh, King David asked a question, uh, in line with this one, what in the world is going on? King David asked in verse number one, why do the nations rage and the people, as in the people of the nations, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot a vain thing or plot vain things? And, and that phrase vain things just means why do the people of the world seem to make goals that prioritize vanity over sanity, vanity over decency? And David asked a pretty sound question. Why is there so much chaos in the world? Why do the nations seem bent on raging and causing trouble, not just for each other, but for themselves? And, and then he says this in verse two, kind of as a conclusion. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Now, I don't think David is, is, is meaning that they literally do this, but David is saying that in their actions, in their self-centered, very you know, inward-focused decisions and actions that they, they commit, uh, they are setting themselves against God, and he's not taking shots at a single nation. He's saying all nations, every Gentile nation, including ours, if he could look that far into the future, that every nation, the kings of those nations, set themselves, they establish themselves as if they are self-sufficient 
And the rulers take counsel together. And again, in the ancient world, they couldn't talk to each other. They may have met from time to time, but nobody talked on the phone. There were no summits like there are today. But David is saying in general, the nations and the kings of those nations all kind of make a, a mutual decision in their own individual ways. They all make the same decision, that they're doing what's good for them. And in turn, that seems to be against the will of God, against the soundness that God would have them uh, to, to do. And, and, and that seems... Uh, that it seems that those that rule the earth have an agenda. It seems they have an agenda that is contrary in every way with God's agenda in terms of the qualities and the virtues that are, you know, in, in, in intrinsic and, and um, important to those that rule the nations of the world. Our world, I think I can say this without being too controversial, our world is set on destruction. Our world seems to always choose chaos over peace. And isn't it strange that everybody in every country, every leader of every country claims that they want peace and prosperity for everyone in their nation, even beyond their nation. But even if they profess that they want peace and prosperity, they seem bent on making decisions that contradict this. That every leader of every every nation that has ever existed on this planet claims that they want peace and prosperity, but they have actions that suggest otherwise, which maybe suggests that they really aren't that in control after all. David was spot on when he characterizes the nations as raging. Now, raging is a word that you probably would never, you would, I hope you would not describe yourself as someone who has rage. That's a little bit, uh, a, a little bit uh, over the top, but rage is a word that we might not describe uh, people, you know, use it to describe people, but you would probably very quickly and, and naturally describe an animal as having rage. And, and, and the word rage is primarily a beastly quality. And it shouldn't come to any surprise that the Bible often describes and often characterizes and depicts nations of the world as beasts. Um, If you read the Old Testament, even the New Testament, uh, the nations are often characterized as lions or bears or leopards or dragons. Uh, and, and, And what do beasts do? Beasts are full of rage. They tear at each other. They pull each other apart. That's what the nature of beasts are, right? And if you get in the wild with a beast, it's most likely going to uh, see you as a threat and and, and maybe they can be tamed in some instances, but most likely they just can't help themselves. What do beasts do? They are full of rage and they rage towards one another. It's just what beasts do. And it's easy to hear this. Uh, It's easy to hear that the nations are full of rage and that there's nothing really that's going to prevent them from being full of rage. It's easy to hear this and feel helpless especially when the beast that rules over us or around us is raging. Now, every nation is not always in a state of rage, but they're always close to it, even the ones that you don't suspect. Every nation is full of this rage. It's just what is in the nature of the nation. And we say, well, not our nation or not that nation, not that leader, not this party. Of course, we would say that about the ones that we support. But the truth is, every nation and every leader of every nation has, at its core is full of this beastly quality, of this beastly 
nature. Now, David, as the leader of God's people on earth in that day, in the ancient world, there were no churches, there were no, uh, there were no you know, uh, people of God on every nation. There was one nation with the, uh, that had the people of God in it, and even they weren't always, always in tune with God. But there was the nation of Israel, because God revealed himself to Israel first. There was the nation of Israel, and David was the king of the nation of God uh, 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 at the time, which was confined to this single nation in a single place. And it was naturally, naturally, Israel was pretty shaken up by all the unrest around him and around the nation at any given time. You can't turn, and I challenge you to do this, you can't turn uh, the page in 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Kings, a span of 500 years or less. You cannot look on a page in 1 Samuel through 2 Kings and not find wars or rumors of wars. And again, that was the time of Israel's heyday. And yet there was always conflict just around the corner or just behind the men. Now, as David expresses the dismay and the concern over the world, um, like any king would, uh, leading his people the best he could, he also gives us a sense of clarity and confidence and assurance in the face of it all. Look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. So we have these beastly nations raging as if they don't have any other option because what do what beasts do? They are rageful. They are, they are full of that, na- that nature that is so um, destructive. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now that speaks of the heavenly king, but it also speaks over the time, the earthly nation and the earthly kingdom of Israel. And you see the contrast here. The nations rage as if they have everything uh, in their own power and able to make decisions that are uh, you know, for, their, for their own good, but for the others' um, uh, dismay. Yet David says, God sees all of this and he laughs at it. You might not think of God as laughing, especially in this situation, but that's what David's, God's response is, that God laughs as if the These nations literally think they are in charge or they are in charge. They are not in charge, actually. God says he observes from heaven and he holds them in derision and he has ultimately their future in his hand. And listen to what David says God has revealed to him as at the time, the king of the kingdom of God, the king of the nation of God's people. God says to David, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, and again, that's to David, You are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. So what is God telling David? Maybe maybe you're wondering, what is God telling David? God says to David, David, I want you to know, you may feel distressed by what's going on around you. You may feel like there is a lot of uh, chaos and confusion and you may feel on edge and you may be wondering what is gonna happen when that nation does this and what, you know, what are we to do in response? God says to David, David, ask of me and I will give it. And here's my promise to you. The nations are for your inheritance. As in what they are doing and what they are up to, ultimately that is all for the gain of your kingdom. Now at the time it was Israel, but this speaks in a spiritual sense of the kingdom of God. This is all for the, uh, for the upbuilding, for the glorification of the people of God. The ends of the earth are repossession, as in at the end of it all, when all this is wrapping up, the end goal, the end game, the destination of it all is something that is for the people of God to enjoy. That's a promise to David and to every child of God that reads this text, that lives in this world, that observes the wrath and observes the chaos and observes the rage, God says to us, God says to you and he says to me, 
The, this is to the ends of the earth will be your possession, as in this is all headed somewhere that's going to benefit the people of God, first and foremost. Now, what do we learn from these verses, this verse or this conclusion? God is sovereign. We, we talk about that word a lot here, which I think I, if, if that's a new word in your vocabulary, I think that's a good word to keep in your vocabulary and your theological understanding. When we talk about God is sovereign or when we talk about a sovereign nation, we talk about something that someone or something that is in control and is unaffected by somebody else that is not at the mercy of someone else, right? There are nations and there are sovereign nations. There are nations that are dependent on other nations and there are nations that are dependent on nobody but themselves. Now, ultimately, we know there's only one sovereign and that is God. God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. God is not dependent on anyone. We are dependent on him. That is the definition of sovereign. God reigns. You can understand it that way, that, the, the last part of that word, the word reign. God reigns. God so reigns over the whole world. So we hear from this verse that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Why else would he laugh at what the man, what man plans and man attempts? God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and everything, everything, and, and I want to emphasize everything, ultimately serves to advance his kingdom. That everything that transpires on this planet is for the purpose of advancing his kingdom kingdom as in getting us closer to building out and growing adding to his kingdom now if you are a christian these two points this psalm what i believe the two main points we get from this psalm these two points should calm you and should give you a peace that surpasses understanding and if you forsake that peace and forfeit that peace not to be mean but that's your own fault because God has given you these two truths. God has, and this is from all the Bible, God has given you these two points of confidence. He is sovereign over all and everything serves to advance his kingdom. You can count on that. So why should we worry? Why should we be surprised or dismayed? Of course, we still are, but maybe we need a little bit more clarity to get a little bit more peace. Now, this can't be interpreted as only applying to ancient Israel. Let me explain that. This is not to say that it doesn't still apply to Israel, but Israel ceased to exist uh, for about 1,900 years. We all know that. So uh, for, for him to say that uh, all this is for your possession and your inheritance, um, it, it literally couldn't have been true for Israel for those 1,900 years. So my point is there's a spiritual application to this that applies to the people of God and the kingdom of God that is not pertaining to a place and time, but it is, that is you know, referring to us as God's people throughout the ages, pointing to the age to come. So again, with reference to Israel, we respect that, but we also bring that and broaden that to speak to the people of God uh, which we are a part of, of course. So if it was only talking to David and his people, there'd be a, a hard time explaining some of the gaps in history. But the point here is that God promises David at the time, the central figure in his earthly kingdom. God promises David this, and this might be hard to accept or hard to understand. The raging kingdoms of man serve the purposes of the coming kingdom of God. Do you believe that? that the raging beasts are on a leash. It's hard to put a lion or a bear or some, uh, uh, un, some mystical dragon on a leash, I know that. But God says, every raging kingdom of man is on a leash and they bow to me. They serve the purpose 
of the coming kingdom of God. Now, this is the Bible's consistent message. I want you to have confidence and I want you to have comfort from that. This is the Bible's consistent message about how we are to read the tea leaves, interpret the circumstances and condition of the world. But the Bible doesn't just speak vaguely on this. No, it gives us some incredible insight on several different occasions. And what one example I wanna focus in on for a little bit tonight is the story of Exodus. So if you would turn back with me to Exodus chapter one, we'll start there and I wanna show you a few verses along the way. But while you find your place, um, we're all familiar with the story of Exodus. Exodus is the story of Israel versus Egypt. And, and again, they, you know, not really a war against each other, but it was Israel as slaves and Egypt. It's the story of, more importantly, it's the story of Yahweh God, the one true God versus Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews versus the God of the Egyptians. We are familiar with how Pharaoh presided over some devastating uh, attacks and actions against the people of God. Um, as the Hebrews had become slaves in Egypt, uh, as the Hebrew people began to become more populated after hundreds of years of being slaves, uh, Pharaoh began to see them as a a potential opponent uh, and begin to size them up uh, and begin to oppress them. And I want to show you a couple of the worst examples or the most egregious examples. Uh, Exodus 1, 13 and 14. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And that just means it was aggressive. It was abusive. It was uh, uh, oppressive. Uh, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, as if that needs more explanation, with, in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So you say, well, that's not the worst situation. I mean, they were just having, they, they had to work hard, which, I mean, they were slaves. That was wrong. But on top of that, they were working in very rigorous conditions. But it gets worse. It gets much worse. Uh, down in verse 22, because the population continued to get out of control, it says, Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born in the Hebrew camps shall be cast into the river, but you can save the girls. But every boy, because we don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want the Hebrews raising an army against me. So every boy born in a certain period of time in ancient Egypt to the Hebrew people was cast into a river and drowned. Now we know one survived, but that's one out of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands that were literally thrown into the Nile River. Can you imagine that? How in the world could God let that happen to his people? I mean, I think that's okay to ask out loud. I mean, why would God allow his people to have their babies ripped from their arms and thrown into the Nile River. And the Egyptians believed the Nile River was the, literally the tongue of the gods. It was the mouth of the gods. It was the water that flowed from the gods' belly. So literally what was Pharaoh doing? He was taking the Hebrew babies and feeding them to the Egyptian gods. And the Hebrews began to wonder, we've heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's no longer with us. Because why would he let our babies be swept up swallowed up by the Nile. Over in chapter two, after the, of course the story of Moses begins, we find that 
the oppressive, as it, maybe it doesn't get worse than feeding babies to the river, I don't know. But again, there's more examples of oppression. Chapter two, verse 11. Uh, this is when Moses is an adult. Now we know Moses became the prince of Egypt, but Moses didn't use that position to free the people that he didn't realize he was a part of. But later on, he realizes he's a Hebrew. And uh, chapter two, verse 11 says, it came, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and saw, at the, saw and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he, he observed, and I don't think this was a one-time instance. Of course it wasn't. This was a, a, an everyday instance, an everyday occurrence. Moses watched the Egyptian people beat the Hebrew slaves. And I don't think this was just a slap on the wrist. I think this was, was, was as bad as you can imagine it would be. Can you imagine this? These are God's people, aren't they? These are God's chosen people being beaten and murdered. Chapter 2, verse 23, because, of course, you're probably wondering, where's God at in all this? Now, it happened in the process of, the children of, uh, process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. Did it just only come up to God? We don't know. But nonetheless, it reached God. So God heard their groaning. Did God only now hear their groaning? We don't know. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. Did he only now remember his covenant? We don't know. But he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. But I, I want to just step in and say, when it's your baby being thrown into the river, you need more than being acknowledged, don't you? I mean, when it's your baby being ripped from you and taken to a, to, and drowned, you need more than just a, oh, I remember that. I acknowledge that. And, and I'm leaning into the discomfort because sometimes what we observe is uncomfortable. But yet God is no less sovereign and God is no less good. But what we may be facing is not good at all. But it's in the tension that this world often puts us in that we are forced to pick a side and forced to, to, to come to terms with. Do we put our faith in the God who has a plan or do we jettison that faith? Because it just doesn't make sense to us in the moment. Of course, there are many other examples of oppression that he brought on the people, but we know the story. God raises up Moses to be his mouthpiece and prophet and messenger and his people's deliverer. He introduces Moses as his deliverer. And the people of God don't, the people of Israel don't accept Moses initially because they don't really trust God. Why would they at this point, right? I mean, what has God done for them lately? Nothing. Uh, so they don't trust Moses at first. And finally, Moses wins them over after relentless pursuit of them. Uh, and, and then a series of plagues are ish, uh, ushered in on and unleashed on Egypt to combat the gods of Egypt. And, and I want to zoom in on one particular episode, which both explains God's intentions with the plagues and it allows us to gain insight as to why God allowed this to happen in the first place because God was still sovereign, even in the midst of the sorrow. Flip over to chapter nine, if you will. And again, I encourage you, if you have not read this lately, read the whole uh, story, Exodus one through Exodus 12 is a beautiful story. It's a, it's a difficult story, but it explains how God was sovereign through all of this and how God was working through all of this. But I wanna zoom in on the seventh plague, not really significant uh, about the plague, but this is where we get the dialogue that I think helps us the most. Exodus nine, um, verse number 16, uh, and we're going to gain some insight about God's sovereignty and about why God uh, allowed his people to get into this mess in the beginning, in the first place. 
9.13, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Now, let me just interject. Don't you imagine that Pharaoh even wondered, why would the people trust in this God after this God has let me run, rough, you know, run over them for the last how many decades? Don't you think Pharaoh was wondering, what kind of God do y'all serve? If he's actually your God, I mean, look at what I've done to your people. Has your God just let me do that? Are you expecting me to believe that suddenly your God is back and he wants to exert his power over me? I mean, I don't really know if that's really, you know, legit. And that's what makes this story even more incredible. And that's why I would say you would never make this story up. I believe the Bible's inspired because the Bible says and tells us where it's inspired. But this, another reason why I believe it's inspired is you would never make this up. If you made this up, it would be all. Oh, they were always in favor. They were always in prosperity. They were always at the, you know how it would go. You've read fairy tales. You've read myths. You've read other religious uh, stories. They're always so squeaky clean. And they always make the God look as if he's never done anything that, you know, cast a, a bad shadow. But this story gives us the full picture, doesn't it? As if God isn't concerned that we might have questions. As if God invites us to ask those questions because God has answers. Verse 14, for at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know. Have you heard that phrase before? If you've read Exodus, you've heard that phrase before. We did a whole study on Exodus and we talk about that phrase a lot. That you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Why did God allow his people to become slaves to the empire that ruled the world? Why did God take the smallest of people and put them at the mercy? of the largest of people so that the whole world may know. And let's just zoom out a little bit. Four, 3,500, 3,000 plus years later, this story is known by the whole world. And three billion plus people when you count Christians and Jews, worship the God of Israel and nobody worships the gods of Egypt, do they? That's just, that's interesting, isn't it? That the world may know that there is none like me and is there anyone like the God of Israel? Is there anyone like Yahweh? I think history has proven, no, there isn't. So why has all this happened so that the world may know? Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. As in, I could have done this the whole time, Pharaoh. I allowed you to get this prosperous and this powerful. And Pharaoh's thinking, who are you to me? You don't have anything on me. You're not controlling me. You're not Lord over me. I don't even know who you are. I don't even believe you're real. So you see what God is doing here when he's communicating to Pharaoh? And verse 16 is, I mean... If there is a theological Mount Rushmore, this verse maybe should be on it. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up. You know what that says? God raised Pharaoh up. He didn't just intervene in Pharaoh's life or Pharaoh's rule. God put Pharaoh on the throne. Isn't that incredible? 
God put Pharaoh on the throne in which he would use his power against God's people. God raised Pharaoh up. That I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And here's what I want us to understand. And maybe, you'll, maybe the gravity of this is too big for us to get into on a Sunday night, right? But I hope this makes you step back and kind of just say, wow, is God up to something much bigger than I would have originally thought? Because God says, Pharaoh, I gave you life I gave you power, I gave you this throne, I gave you the ability to oppress my people because I've got a plan through it all. This verse tells us that God raised Pharaoh up on purpose so that he might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that his name might be eventually exalted above Pharaoh and then proclaimed in all the earth. But don't miss this. Pharaoh is a chosen vessel of God for a divine purpose. Now, if that makes you feel complicated, if that gives you complicated feelings, because we know what Pharaoh's done, don't we? That's natural to feel kind of, I don't know about that. Pharaoh presided over awful, atrocious acts against the people of God. Babies thrown into the Nile, slaves beat to death, countless people oppressed under his regime. Yet in spite of all that, the Bible tells us both here and Romans 9, from the very beginning, Pharaoh was an instrument of God, used to proclaim God's glory in the gospel. So here's what I think we should, we should be very quick to, to confess. It's hard to tell where God is and who he's using if he used Pharaoh as an instrument, isn't it? I mean, before we stand up and say, well, clearly God's on this side and clearly God would never use them. Really? I mean, clearly God, maybe he wouldn't use them the way you would like him to use them, but don't say he wouldn't use them because he used Pharaoh. He picked Pharaoh. He anointed Pharaoh. <laughs> We're just getting started. How's that make you feel? A little bit. Hopefully it causes you to think, well, maybe, maybe God is bigger. <laughs> and maybe God's plans are a little bit more deep than I thought they were. Now, does, the, does this bring some complicated implications? Yes, it does. But nonetheless, the Bible tells us this is this in hopes to give us peace. This is not revealed to us so that we might worry. This is revealed to us that we might have confidence and that as the ground beneath us is shaken, that we might find solid, secure ground through it all. Now, to be clear, this is really just a macro version, a big version of what we know and what we believe is true about our individual trials and sufferings as the people of God, as the Bible explains. Remember, how did the children of Israel get to Egypt in the first place? Because Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And they wanted to kill him, but Judah said, no, 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 we can make some money off this guy. Let's sell him. So God sent Joseph to Egypt so that he might become the prince of Egypt. And so he might prepare a, a stockpile of goods for the world during a time of famine. God put Joseph in Egypt to bring goods to the world. So that's a good thing, but it took him a lot of, of, of trials to get there, right? 13 years in prison accused of rape, accused of murder, all that stuff, right? He was uh, accused of lying. Joseph was not, didn't have an easy road yet. God says, I did all that. I mean, this verse doesn't stutter. Look at Genesis 50. This is Joseph talking. As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. As in, that's a big phrase, isn't it? Not God used it, not God allowed it, not God redeemed it. God meant it. 
I mean, how do you think Joseph would feel in the moment when he was thrown into the pit? Oh, God meant that. Well, that's kind of mean. That's kind of raw. That's kind of bad. God meant for me to be accused of rape and thrown in prison and, and forgotten for 13 years. God meant all that. Well, now when he's on the throne and he's saving the world, well, that's good. To, that's an okay thing to think. You see how sometimes it takes time to see what God's up to? God meant it for good to bring about salvation to the world because the world was saved through his leadership. But if God meant Joseph to be the prince of Egypt, then God also meant for him to be betrayed by his brothers, meant for him to be thrown into the pit, meant for him to be made a slave, meant for him to be accused of rape, meant for him to be left in prison, right? God meant all that. Is the same thing true about how God is sovereign over us in our world today? Well, according to the New Testament, yeah, it's true. We studied this in Acts, and if you would, flip over to Acts 8. I want to show you a couple verses there because I believe this same principle from Exodus and Genesis is also true and also found in Acts, which correlates to us. When we studied Acts a while back, we, saw, we determined there was a direct correlation between the outbreak of persecution and the breakout movement of the gospel in the church from Acts 8 forward. Now, in Acts 8, we're introduced to the persecution that comes from a state-sponsored level. When Saul of Tarsus, with the government of Israel adjacent to Rome, they begin targeting the Jews with uh, government-funded persecution, as in the government is paying Saul to go and hunt down Christians. Now, I want you to pay attention to something. Now, look at Acts 8, verse 1. We'll go to verse 4 and 5. Now, Saul was consenting to his death at Stephen's death. At the time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And it says the apostles were devout men who carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him because they just lost the boldest, bravest guy they had. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every home, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I mean, are we about to say that God meant all that too? Yeah, we are. Saul was going into houses, beating people's doors down and dragging them out by their ankles. Verse four. Therefore, as you know what therefore means, it means that because of that, this happened. And it wouldn't have happened without that. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So what is a direct correlation between persecution and proclamation, right? Do, do you see something here? That God subjected his people to suffering in order that he might reveal his salvation to more people? That's what happened with Joseph, right? Joseph suffered, salvation came to the world through the, 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 the goods. The people of Israel suffered, salvation came to the world because of what God did through them and showed Pharaoh through them that he was sovereign and he was greater, even though it took a long time. And God allows the church to suffer so that more people might hear his word. Verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Would they have ever went to Samaria if things were cozy in Judea? No. They went to Samaria because the Samaritans weren't going to kill them. And they could preach the gospel there. And look at verse 8. We, and, and between there, it says the Samaritans were saved. Verse 8 says there was great joy in that city. Now, it, I, I'm reading New King James. If, if, I'm sure your Bible might say much joy, but look at verse 2, great lamentation. And look at verse 8, great joy. There's a correlation there, isn't there? There was great sorrow 
and now there's great joy. Would there have been great joy without that great sorrow? I would say no, because you can't get to verse 8 without going through verse 2, right? That's how math works, right? I think. I don't think that's a coincidence, do you? Suffering leads to salvation. Sorrow leads to joy. In fact, Peter believed this. He took this to an extreme place. I would never take this to an extreme place like Peter, but I'm not Peter, and I'm not inspired like Peter, so let's take Peter's word, not mine. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Now, this is the same guy that told you to respect the emperor who was trying to kill you, so this guy's a little crazy, okay? Um, yeah, that's just... People would say that, right? I mean, I believe he's inspired. Some might say he's crazy. He's inspired and he's saying to us, rejoice when you suffer insofar that you are sharing with the glory of Christ. And when the purpose of that trial is revealed, more glory is going to be revealed. You know what that glory is, is talking about? The gospel spreading and changing lives. So this speaks to the hardships that we face, but it doesn't answer completely what is going on in the rest of the world. So we've addressed the church. Now let's zoom back out and address the world again. It's still based on these same truths. Whatever transpires among the nations is meant to, meant to, very intentional with that word, meant to exalt Jesus, spread the gospel, and further his kingdom. When you see what, when you think what in the world is going on, Hey, God raised up Pharaoh. God put Joseph in prison and then put, you know, God did all that with a plan. So if God raised up Pharaoh and used Pharaoh to bring about salvation, if God put Joseph in prison, if God let the church be persecuted, then when we see the nations raging, what should we think? Well, clearly he's doing this to exalt Jesus to spread the gospel and further his kingdom. And you can say that without batting an eye, without scratching your head and without doubting at all. Isaiah says this about the Persian king who let's just say was not a godly man. <laughs> Persian king who conquered the whole Middle East and was threatening to conquer the, the people of, of God. <laughs> this is what Isaiah says. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. And the Cyrus, the, the wicked king of Persia, yeah, that guy. Thus says the Lord, he to his anointed Cyrus, He's going to use Cyrus to subdue nations and loose the belts of kings and open doors, as in he was appointing Cyrus like he appointed Pharaoh. So if he appointed Pharaoh, we got two kings right now, Pharaoh and Cyrus, Pharaoh of Egypt, Cyrus of Persia. Is it just those two? Cyrus was used by God to restore Israel and thus restore the Messianic timeline. But to make things less specific, this isn't just true about Pharaoh. It's not just true about Cyrus. One last time, flip back to the Old Testament, Daniel 4 with me, and we'll wrap up. And if you haven't made Daniel 4 a go-to passage of Scripture for you, you should. I preach this probably every election season because I think it's worth repeating, but I think it should be read more than just every four years. This is a passage about Nebuchadnezzar having a dream, and the dream he sees his kingdom falling apart, and he sees other kingdoms coming and replacing his kingdom, and he gets worried, and he calls Daniel up and says, Daniel, tell me what this dream means. And Daniel says, well, this is the kind of dream you would wish your enemies would have because this is not a good dream for you, Nebuchadnezzar, because it's predicting your fall and someone else's rise. Actually, it predicts Nebuchadnezzar's fall and Cyrus's rise, if you want to get specific. But this is what Daniel, this is how Daniel interprets the dream. And we're just going to highlight a couple of verses. Verse 17 first. And he, uh, he uh, translates what 
Nebuchadnezzar heard from these angels or these watchers. This is the decision. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know. Anytime you see that phrase in the Bible, Exodus, Daniel, other places, that means you're getting something big. You're getting a big theological statement. That the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it or gives those kingdoms to whomever he wills and sets over it the lowest of men, as in he only ever sets over it the lowest of men because they're all low compared to him. Well, we've had some pretty high or pretty exalted, pretty regal people. No, we haven't. They're all low according to and compared to God. What is what does that say again? Gives it to whomever he wills. Does God will anything nonchalantly or accidentally? No, God is intentional, isn't he? He was intentional with Pharaoh. He was intentional with Cyrus, intentional with Joseph, intentional with the Saul, Saul and Stephen and all that. He gives it to whomever he wills. He sets over it the lowest of men, down to verse 34, 35. And this is Nebuchadnezzar who stands in front of his people at the end of his kingdom and says, y'all, I got to tell y'all something. And this was really crazy. Again, you wouldn't make this up. Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree for the people of his empire to hear. At the end of my time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me. I blessed the Most High, praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, as in he's always at work in everyone. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And man, this is a big couple of lines. No one can stay his hand. No one can restrain his hand or no one can say to him, what have you done? Now, would it have been okay for the people of Israel to say, God, what are you doing when Pharaoh was killing them? Yes. But Daniel says, no, no, no. We shouldn't question because God has a plan. And sometimes it involves suffering. Sometimes it involves sorrow. Sometimes it involves trials. But we see where God is going with all this. Or you can see if you choose to have faith. Now, I want to just wrap all this up by saying all this is meant to instill instill us with confidence and courage in a world that often seems to be unraveling. And it brings us to our current, to the world's current affairs. Is all of this true that we've read tonight and talked about tonight, and we just scratched the surface. So I could go, we could go on all night, but y'all don't want to be here all night. Is all that we've talked about tonight, is all of that true as we observe, for instance, the aggression of one nation against another? Is all of that true when we observe the aggression of Russia against a neighboring country? And, and, and we wonder what might come of it? And what could be brewing in other nations as we wonder, hey, what's going on with the Middle East? What's going on with China? What's going on? Is all this true with all the nations around us? Is all this true with our nation? Absolutely. And we as God's people ought to be shouting this stuff. And I'm not trying to point a finger to me or, or gloat, but is this stuff, do we talk about this stuff in church much? No. Nobody talks about this stuff. And we all run around like we're scared to death and worried about everything. And why do we worry? Why would we worry when all this is so biblical? And again, I'm not smarter than anybody else. It's just, I've just been talking Bible to y'all. I've just been reading verses to you. Sometimes you just got to connect the dots, don't you? All this is absolutely true. 
If we are students of the Bible and people of faith, we will internalize this so that we might have peace and confidence and help stabilize the church when it begins to be filled with fear and dread. And we, all, all, we really ought to be more confident than ever. I know that when things begin to go down in the world, when wars and rumors of war intensify, we begin to wonder, are these signs of the end? And maybe they are. But more importantly, what we sh- how we should respond and what we should be thinking right now is, how might what's going on lead to the church's growth and advance his kingdom? Because every time anything like this has went on in history, it's led to the growth of God's people and the growth of his kingdom. That's what we should be asking right now, and that's what we should be expecting. That's what leads us into eternity, of course. Might this be a precursor of something in prophetic time, uh, God's prophetic timeline? There's no way to know. Maybe, probably, it's always getting closer. But what we must always do is look for ways to point to God through it all. And, and I want you to consider something. I want you to consider just how long, how often it takes years for us to see it all come together. For example, 100 years ago or more, the world was a very volatile place, more volatile than it is now, but almost, we're in a similar place. After decades of imperial expansion throughout the 1800s by dozens of superpowers, it was like the whole world was just itching for war. One historian describes it as if every nation had a gun pointed to its neighbor and beyond that. Every nation had its cannons filled with ammunition. Across the 20th, first, century, first decade of the 20th century, every nation was against every nation. And finally, a domino fell on a summer day in 1914 that no one could have predicted where it would lead the world to. On June 28, 1914, the Archduke of Austria, a guy named Franz Ferdinand, pretty cool name. He was on, he was riding on a convert convertible in the streets of Serbia when a member of a secret society called the Black Hand shot the Archduke and killed him. Less than a month later, Austria declared war on Serbia, which in turn brought in Germany and Russia. Russia took Serbia's side. Germany took Austria's side. Germany and Russia already hated each other. So next thing you know it, the whole world joined in and you know what happened. World War I happened. And it was this war that resulted in the impoverished Germany and Russia, and it set the course for the next hundred years of conflict. World War II and the Cold War all were a direct result of this incident between two completely separate nations from those others. Of course, we know that an embittered Germany gave way to the rise of Hitler and the Holocaust. And where, would, and, and where did that lead other than the nation of Israel rising out of the ashes in 1948. Again, it took a Serbian mob member killed an Austrian prince and that led to the nation of Israel coming back. I mean, can you make that up? And post-World War II America became prosperous and prominent, led to the gospel being spread to the ends of the earth. And all this was a part of God's plan. So I say all that to say, we don't know what the leaders of the world might be up to and what they're thinking, but we know what God is thinking. God is thinking gospel proclamation and kingdom come. That's what he's always thinking. So to the answer the question, what in the world is going on? To answer the question, why do the nations rage? Maybe they rage to get our attention. Not because they deserve our attention, but because God deserves our attention. To cause, us, to cause us to sit up straighter and be more intent 
Why is there an ebb and flow in the condition of every country, including our own, to loosen our grip on this soul and tighten our grip to the kingdom that's coming? So what should our response be to it all? We ought to possess a more urgent spirit and be as focused as ever on preaching Jesus and pointing to his kingdom because Jesus said this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. The end's coming whenever it's coming. God's appointed that. But what he's saying here is we can get in on the process or we can sit back and watch. But as we see the signs of the time, as we see one nation against another, as we see all the unrest in our own country and everywhere else, we ought to begin echoing God's intentions through it all. As our ground shakes, we need to be looking to the ground that will never be shaken. Hebrews 12 says that our ground is shaking so that we might step onto an unshakable ground. Listen, God loves our world. He does. God so loved the world. God is for the world. And when it seems like nothing makes sense, God may just be connecting the dots that bring about something more glorious than we could ever imagine. What have you learned tonight? God raises up every kingdom and every king and queen. For what purpose? For his purpose. And the people of God often suffer as a result. But the end game is salvation for more. And the end game is a world that we all are waiting for. So in the meantime, when you observe what's going on, when you ask yourself what in the world is going on, when someone else asks you that, you know the answer. God has got it going on. God has a plan. You want to know more about his plan? Well, just dig in. There's a lot more to come. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible, incredible journey through the scriptures. Lord, it's just so good that it's just right there for us to dig into. If we would just dig into it more often, who knows how much more uh, educated and inspired we would be. God, it's natural to wonder and worry and ask why and ask what is going on. But help us to have confidence that you have it all under control. You have it all under control. We may not agree with who you're using and who you've appointed, but what we should always agree with is that you have a plan and you have an agenda and it's to spread the gospel and to build a kingdom. Lord, help us to echo that. Help us to channel that message. Help us to get that message out to more people. Help us to point to you through it all and not be afraid to say God is at work, even if it means that we suffer a little bit because we know God has a plan. God, be with us. Give us confidence and courage. Help us to go into a world that is worried and, and wounded. Help us to go and spread a message of peace and confidence and a God who is in control and sovereign. We ask this in his name. Amen.